You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. I want to thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode, where we will be discussing the various roles the pharmacist plays within the interprofessional oncology healthcare team, and also we'll be talking about updates in blood cancer treatments. Today, I am very pleased to be joined by Dr. Peter Campbell, who's the Clinical Pharmacy Manager in Hematology and Oncology at the Columbia University Irving Medical Center in New York. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Before we start, I just want to reflect for a minute. Having been a medical oncologist for many years, there were a lot of years at the ASCO meeting and at the ASH meeting where there did not seem to be a lot of huge breakthroughs. There was a lot of rehashing of taking present medications and combining them and changing the dosing, but not much new. And now it is really just sort of the opposite with so much new. So I just want to get your perspective over your career about where we've been and where we're going in terms of drug development and how it affects you and your work. Sure. So, I mean, I can easily say that when I was doing my residency training, which was not terribly long ago, I think eight years ago, I remember going through the uh, specifically leukemia and lymphoma pipelines and the people that were teaching me said, you know, there's not a lot of updates. You can memorize this once and we probably won't need to refresh it for quite a while. And Mm -hmm. lo and behold, for the first couple of years of my career, that was probably true. But now there seems to be as many breakthroughs in the leukemia and lymphoma world as there are certainly in the solid tumor setting. And so I think it's a really exciting time to be practicing because I find myself struggling just to stay up to date in the narrow practice setting that I practice in, in the hematological malignancies. Uh, thank God for things like Twitter to uh, get journal articles pushed to your inbox and be able to stay up to date. But it's it's certainly a really exciting time because we're being able to offer patients new drugs that didn't exist even six months ago. Yeah, which I agree with you. It is a very exciting time for us and hard to keep up. What do you see as the pharmacist's role in the team when a patient's diagnosed and being treated for a blood cancer? Yeah, so I think that pharmacy really plays a huge role, specifically in the drug therapy management, because I think while all healthcare providers like to stay up to date with literature, it really becomes our responsibility to be on top of the medication therapy. Now, with a lot of these new drugs that are coming out, there are new toxicities that have new treatment strategies. And then especially on top of that, there's administration criteria for each of these drugs that vary. So if we take some of our new oral agents, they may not be as simple as take a pill once a day forever. They may be 14 days on, 14 days off. They may come in certain blister packs, need dose escalations. And so I think that having a pharmacist on the team who has an integral knowledge of all of the ins and outs of these medications, whether it's drug-drug interactions, how they're given, toxicities. I work really closely with 
all of the different members of the healthcare team to make sure that we're all on the same page and, you know, we're looking at ultimately what's best for the patient. Let me ask you, sort of for an example, as you think back on the last few weeks, you know, patients starting a new medication, tell us a little bit more. I mean, what would have been an example of how you were involved in counseling the team and counseling the patient? Yeah, sure. So I think that a good example in terms of working closely with the team would be if you have a patient that's being started on, let's say, one of the new BTK inhibitors, which we know carries some cardiovascular risks, specifically atrial fibrillation, we would easily consult cards and they would tell us to start some agent to help rate control the patient. Now, you have a whole host of drugs that you can use to rate control a patient. However, they're not all designed the same because there are a number of drug interactions. So you need to be aware that you need to start a drug that not only will rate control the patient, but now you need to take into consideration which of these agents is not going to interact with this BTK inhibitor because that's not something that the cardiologists will always be thinking about. And so amiodarone may come off the table, whereas that's their first line agent to use. We may have to find an alternative like a beta blocker. And so Mm -hmm. being present and bridging that gap between the multidisciplinary teams or the different specialties within medicine uh, is something that I think has been really important. And working directly with patients, a lot of the counseling focuses on adherence and toxicities. So a lot of these regimens, we could take venetoclax as an example, that has a pretty complex ramp up for CLL patients in the beginning. Yes. And that takes a lot of dedication uh, for the patients to understand that, and especially working with their caregivers as well, or their family members, because it's a lot to keep track of. We have patients who have difficulty keeping track of one tablet once a day. Imagine having to change the dose of your med every week. That gets pretty complicated. Thank you. I can picture it as you're talking about it. So, for example, someone like that, where you're ramping up the dose or changing the dose or modifying the dose, how often would you be in contact with that patient? When would you see them? When when would you talk with them? Yeah, so I primarily work in the inpatient setting. And so I am typically involved when the patient is first starting these therapies. And so Once they are starting the therapy, helping to outline for them, a lot of times what we'll do is write them a calendar, which people find to be very helpful, and that gives them a guide of what they can follow. And then once they leave the hospital, we also make sure that they have all of our contact information to stay in touch, especially I give them my business card. And so giving them a quick line, letting them know that you have a 24-7 access to someone on the team to talk to. But a lot of my direct involvement is up front when patients are initially diagnosed or initially started on therapy. I want to ask you a variety of questions. We'll try to make it sort of generic about these new drugs, many of which are tyrosine kinase inhibitors, but there's others as well. So I'm going to talk on a very general kind of level but what are these drugs costing? Let's say, for example, the oral drugs, which we're using more and more. How much a month are these drugs costing? And then I actually want to get into what are you seeing in terms of coverage, patient costs, patient access? Yeah, so I think that when we broke from traditional chemotherapy to the tyrosine kinase and oral agents land, we thought that We've turned a corner, we've gotten rid of all of the toxicity for these drugs, but we've stumbled upon this newfound financial toxicity that is really hitting patients hard. And so 
Unfortunately, these drugs are very costly. You can see average out-of-pocket costs upwards of $10,000 a month. Now, luckily, if patients have insurance coverage, a lot of that will come down. But we routinely, I would say on a weekly basis, have patients whose out-of-pocket cost is going to be two, dollars $3,000 a month. Now, we have been somewhat lucky that a lot of manufacturers will offer copay assistance cards. Some of them will offer a first month free for a drug while we work out financial assistance for them. And then we, thank God, have wonderful programs like LLS that can help step in and offer financial assistance to help these patients. But the out-of-pocket costs can just be staggering for a lot of these patients. Absolutely. How often do you see a situation, even with all the different support mechanisms, where you need to help a patient get a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that may be first generation instead of the second or third generation, or you can't get a patient a medication because of cost? I will be honest that I think we're very lucky in that it doesn't happen a whole lot. However, I attribute that to the wonderful team that I work with. You know, anywhere Mm -hmm. from our specialty pharmacy partners to our physician assistants on the inpatient side or the pharmacy team working really hard to go, we will submit any prior auths, appeals, second appeals, look for grants, copay assistance. But I would still say that there's probably about 10% or so of patients that we have to get them what's probably not considered optimal therapy because of the cost. But that number would be a lot higher if it weren't for the amazing work that a lot of people in the oncology realm do. And I know I'm not speaking about the people just in my organization, but everyone in the oncology field who's as dedicated to patients as we are. Yeah. And by the way, I agree with you. I'll share with you on a community level, it's more challenging because honestly, it's a little bit harder to access the resources for patients. Though I have to say, we too in my practice have had a lot of good luck in terms of help from the LLS and other organizations. So I want to thank you for calling out to them. So I agree. So let me ask you about, again, sort of other challenges. We talked a little bit about cost. How about adherence? What are some of the challenges that you see and ways to overcome them? Yeah, you know, adherence certainly becomes an issue. If we think back to the advent of TKIs in the CML landscape, that proved right there that adherence was really a key factor for these patients with blood cancers because one of the top reasons for treatment failure was a lack of adherence. And so things have gotten more difficult over time with changing dose schedules. So like I said, seven days on, seven days off, or a new oral decidabine product that's five days per cycle. And then if you go to reduce the dose, say you're only giving four days out of a cycle, but yet a patient has a whole five tablet blister pack, they could get confused as to how much should they really take. And so we work really hard to make sure that all of our paperwork is set up so that the patients have been verbally told their families have been told, and then we try to have it in writing as well. Because adherence can be challenging once the people walk out the door. You know, when they're here in the hospital, it's easy for us to stay on top of them. But as you mentioned in the community setting, they may not have the resources that we have while they're here. They walk out the door and we have to rely on them to take the medications. And so we work really hard through counseling and follow-up, post-discharge calls, put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into making sure that people take these medications, especially as we've talked about how expensive they are. 
you've paid for it, might as well take it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, we're essentially in the situation where a pill may be worth two or three hundred dollars. Oh, absolutely. That's a really great point. What is your reading in the literature and just by your own experience in terms of adherence rates, you know, in your population, would you make it an educated guess of 80%, 90%, 20%? I just want to get your experience. Yeah, so I think if you look at the literature, you're going to see a pretty wide range of numbers of what the adherence rates out there are. You know, in fact, I was giving a presentation the other day, and in my background reading, I had looked at one of the new oral agents for a solid tumor. And it was interesting because the study actually went out of their way to point out that they had a 99% adherence rate. Now, granted, that was under the guise of a clinical trial, so it was a much more controlled setting. But I can tell you that is not what we see in the real world. I would mm -hmm. say that on average, we probably have an 85 to 90% uh, adherence rate. But as you know very well, that is not the same across the board because we have patients who take all of their meds. We have patients who miss one to two days a week. And then yeah. we have patients who come in for their next cycle with the whole bottle of tablets still left. So clearly right. they weren't taking any of it because of a miscommunication or misunderstanding. And so the spectrum runs from both ends. But I think if I really had to estimate, we probably have around 90% adherence, but that's through a lot of effort by the whole healthcare team to ensure that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, fortunately, there's, I think there's a lot more uh, recognition of the need for adherence. It was in some ways easier when everything was intravenous because we knew the schedule and we knew the dose and now there's more variables. But I think we as healthcare providers are at least more aware, partially because of the work that you do. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly some literature that has looked at patient preference between oral and intravenous therapies. And there are patients out there who will tell you that coming to the infusion center once every 28 days is more convenient for them than taking a tablet every day. And so you'll see patients that fall on either end of that argument. Right, right. I mean, there's other, you know, along those lines, coming to the infusion center, they're surrounded by a whole team of people which can be very gratifying. You know, nurses they get to know and medical assistants, et cetera. So it's interesting to factor in the sort of the social variables. Yeah, that's a good point. We do tend to create sort of a family for them. Right, absolutely. What are you seeing, again, more on a general level, but as we move more into targeted therapies, what are some of the common side effects that you're seeing and some of the novel side effects that are important for us to know about as oncology providers. Yeah, so I think when we're talking specifically about the heme malignancy landscape, infections is certainly always at the forefront of our minds. And this is something that we've always been dealing with, but with our new oral agents, we haven't really escaped the concept of infections and whether that is a higher risk for viral or PCP infections or patients having prolonged neutropenia uh, in each cycle and just being at risk for neutropenic fever. And so making sure that we don't forget even though they're on an oral agent, they may still become myelosuppressed and we may still need to worry about things like neutropenic fever and not forgetting that just because they're not on an intravenous agent that that doesn't happen. 
Also, we do still have to think about nausea and vomiting as with every other treatment that we've given historically. Mm-hmm. Although with certain immunotherapies or monoclonal antibodies, that's not always going to be the case. But I think that the most prevalent side effects that we see up front are going to be infections and then nausea and vomiting still. All right. So, I'm, Peter, I want to engage you in a real-life situation. So Good. So I have my own thoughts on this, but I would actually engage our pharmacist. So it's not meant to be a quiz question, but sort of a view on how to handle it. I am treating a woman now with a neuroendocrine tumor. So this is not a blood cancer, but we'll use it as a broad example. She was treated with Temidar and Zolota and developed very severe prolonged pancytopenia that finally is getting better. What would be your general view? Because this would apply to blood cancers too. Let's say it was highly affected that she improved. What would be your philosophy in terms of restarting a therapy that has had more toxicity than expected? Yeah, so this is something that we encounter in the heme malignancy setting all the time. So I think it's actually a very pertinent question. I think that when patients have an agent that works, but it is toxic, it sort of behooves us as providers to think about any way that we can to keep them on therapy. Right. So I think there's a lot of strategies around shortening cycles, dose reducing, making sure that we're still getting them the drug because they are clearly getting an effect, but finding the dose that works for them. And so I think with dose reductions, we've had a lot of strong efficacy in this area. And I think clearly over time, we found out that the same dose for every patient does not equal the same effects, whether that's, you know, tumor effects or side effects. And so you'll see in both the example that you gave and in the heme malignancy setting that we routinely have to extend a cycle by a couple of days or slightly dose reduce, but still keep them on track because at the end of the day, you know, clearly we as providers want to get the best response that we can get but also taking into account the patient who's coming to you and saying, look, I just can't tolerate the side effect that I'm getting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this uh, obviously this applies to blood cancers as well. So the patient who gets, for example, toxicity on bendamustine, rituxin, or myeloma therapy, what are your thoughts, again, in broad terms, about very general question, but what might be some of the differences why one patient gets a lot of toxicity and another patient really gets none. What are the mechanisms that are possibly involved? Yeah, I think that probably the biggest mechanism that underlies all of this is that, you know, we we generally apply to patients uh, weight-based dosing strategies or BSA-based dosing strategies And that takes into account many different factors. You know, patients have different volumes of distribution, different physical makeups, and yet we're applying the same template to every single patient. And so I think in the last several years, if not decade, also the concept of pharmacogenomics having an effect on patients has become a really prevalent thing. And Mm -hmm. there's very few pharmacogenomic components that we test for. A handful of drugs have recommended screenings, but we're essentially applying a broad brush to all of our patients and hoping that they all tolerate it the same way. But I could give you a patient who has relatively same size, relatively same organ function, and yet give them both the same dose of a med. One of them is myelosuppressed for three weeks and one of them Mm -hmm. is myelosuppressed for six weeks. And it makes us scratch our head a little bit, but clearly there's a lot of other factors at play. And I think 
um, generalized dosing strategies and pharmacogenomics could be playing a, a factor in that. So if you had to make some, again, predictions, do you expect, I mean, realistically, can we expect to see sort of dosing strategies change? Is it a topic of research or will we probably be in the same place, you know, 10 and 20 years from now later in your career? You know, unfortunately, I think that 10 years from now, we may still be in the same place. So I'll make a 20-year prediction that I think that we will make progress on this because I do think that this is not just something that the oncology landscape is looking at. This is something mm -hmm. across the board in all drug studies and all disease right. states has become a hot topic. And so I think that even things like refining the way in which we calculate creatinine clearances, looking at using a different formula for African-Americans than we do for yes. Caucasians, realizing that there are significant and serious differences uh, between the two populations that we really need to account for to treat them as best as they can be treated. And right. so I think that by making those changes slowly over time, tailoring our drug approaches will get better and better. And I also think that over time, being able to do pharmacogenomic testing cheaper is going to make it more prevalent. You know, if you wanted to send a $10,000 test to look at different SIP enzyme function in patients, most providers are not going to send that test. But if it right. becomes a $200 test, you're talking about a different ballgame. That's true. No, it's absolutely true, especially when we're using drugs that are $10,000. You know, a two hundred dollar test becomes worthwhile. So, yeah, very good point. I thank you for sharing that. What are some of the novel side effects that we all need to be aware of with some of the newer drugs that you're helping deliver to patients? Yeah, so I think that we certainly worry about cardiotoxicity more and more. That has become a more prevalent toxicity that's in our minds, and I think that part of the reason for that is because especially when we think of things like survivorship, as we are getting better and better therapies over time, we also need to worry about toxicities that are going to last and could potentially hurt the patient in the long run. And so especially, again, I'll bring up BTK inhibitors as an example of cardiotoxicities that uh, are certainly a concern, but again, our standard induction for AML, we worry about long-term cardiotoxicities, and then we now have to worry about that with a lot of immunotherapies, especially as they're being studied more and more in the right. hematological landscape. And so I think cardiotoxicity is certainly a one. The other one I would say is uh, autoimmune issues that we have seen with certain immunotherapies that can cause a cascade of different effects in patients that originally threw us for a loop, but now we're getting a little better uh, at managing. So I think those are two things that stand out as being things that we didn't traditionally have to think about all the time, but they're becoming more and more prevalent for us. So again, another, I'll, this is a good opportunity for me as someone on the front line. So we'll talk about Brentuximab Bendontin in Hodgkin's disease. We've been using Bencristine for years, and the general adage has been, you know, when someone can't do their buttons, then we stop. You know, Brentuximab is a little bit different because people can do their buttons, but the sensory part of it can be a bigger problem. What are your thoughts in terms of how do we judge toxicity? What are your thoughts as part of the team on, you know, when do we change dose? When do we stop a medication? Trying to weigh the goal of cure in that setting with the concern about long-term toxicity. 
Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. You know, we sort of touched on earlier trying to avoid stopping therapy. We certainly have studies in different disease states that tell us whether we can or can't. Again, I'll bring up CML saying it's okay to stop in certain patients after five years with certain responses. But we typically think a lot of our therapies we're going to have to continue if we want to get sustained responses. And so I think the one thing to look at is, do we have adequate supportive care to treat a certain toxicity? So we think of patients who have neuropathies with vincristine, we can use agents like gabapentin, and perhaps that will alleviate the patient's symptoms, allowing us to continue. But I think the most important thing, and this is where I also have to admit I really lean on some of the providers I work with, like the PAs, listen to the patient. They will ultimately tell you, you know, we can go into the patient's room and see them perform a few minutes of ADLs and say, you're fine, you look good. But they're telling you, I literally couldn't button my sleeve this morning. I could, yes, I just did it right now, but I grimaced and it was not pleasant. Most of the time I can't even do that. And so I think it's easy for us to see what someone does in a quick snapshot, but we really need to listen to the patient and decide, okay, if there's not a supportive care that I can help give you to help bridge you through this therapy, and you're the one who's telling me that it's unbearable, then that's when we need to think about dose reducing or switching therapies. Now, luckily, the one thing that I'll add is the greatest thing about all these drug approvals that are coming out is that we have alternatives for a lot of agents now. So if patients have a certain toxicity, we may have an alternative that's suitable that we could avoid the toxicity that the patient's experiencing, but perhaps not always compromise their care. It's a good point. Let me reflect on that, that for some of the TKIs, for example, where we have two or three generations, the temptation is use the third generation of a drug But perhaps for some patients, the first generation may not have a side effect that's particularly a problem for them. Does that fit with what you're saying? Oh, absolutely. And I certainly think one thing that I'll add as we go back to toxicities again is it frequently becomes the hot new thing to use the third generation agent. But if we go back to a few minutes ago when we were talking about financial toxicity, If the first-generation agent in a given disease state has good efficacy and is an option that doesn't compromise care, you might be able to give them a generic drug in some situations. And so it's always nice to use the hot new thing, but also taking into consideration financial toxicity and patient out-of-pocket costs if you don't have to. Yeah, no, it's a very good point. So let me ask you also about clinical trials. What are some of the trials you've been involved in on the pharmacy level that you're excited about? Yeah, sure. So the two trials most recently, I would say that we had actively running that I was involved in was uh, involving gilteritinib and also megrolimab was also one that we've had running here for MDS patients. And so I think those are both very exciting agents, uh, especially megrolimab in MDS has shown some really promising results. And so it's really exciting to be able to be a part of those two studies. Down the pipeline, I'll be honest, I'm very excited about what's coming down the pipeline. I think we have some really good drugs coming. So in the last year, we've had oral decitabine come out. We also have oral azacitidine. 
But now there's also being studied azacitidine with cetazuridine, the same combination that was with oral decitabine. And so I think we may be in a situation in the coming years where MDS and perhaps certain AML patients are taking no intravenous medications. And I think that is really something that we might not have thought several years ago. Absolutely. Um, Also some new FLT3 inhibitors that are coming out. And I think one that could be really interesting is aspocytarabine, which is essentially a prodrug for cytarabine, which could allow us to give higher doses to older patients that we previously thought were unfit to receive higher doses of cytarabine. So There's a lot of really interesting things coming, particularly I'll speak in the leukemia landscape where I practice on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. You know, it was interesting as you're talking about some of the drugs, I was raising an eyebrow thinking, wow, I've not heard of that one. But that's going to become more and more common. Obviously, there's so many drugs. And if you look at sort of what are the existing drugs, what have been the ones that, again, you've been most excited about seeing that have already come forward? Yeah, so I'll kind of take the easy way out on this, and I'll tell you that the drug that's come out that I've been most excited about is venetoclax, just because I think that venetoclax plays such a prevalent role in multiple different uh, hematological malignancies, and I'll sort of give you both aspects in that I'm excited about having it now, and I'm excited about having it in the future, because I also think that in the coming years, you are going to see venetoclax studied with every combination that you could ever think of yes, and yes. adding it to every drug. But I think the outcomes that we've seen being able to add in venetoclax as a additive agent for patients or just using it as monotherapy in some patients has been really exciting in the last couple of years. So that's probably been the biggest highlight. So, you know, along those lines, just to comment, I mean, for so many years in acute leukemia, what was it? It was seven and three, you know, Erisi, Donna Rubison, uh, seven and three. I mean, truly for 30 years or more. So how exciting to see all these changes. Absolutely. Peter, I want to ask you about drug access. So you've, let's say, for example, you've got a patient in the hospital with a newly diagnosed uh, heme malignancy. The medical team is very excited about starting a new drug that's, you know, say, wow, this is this is the newest drug we just, it's just published. What are some of the, you know, issues you face about actually having drugs available, getting them paid for, having them available for outpatients once these patients are discharged? Yeah, that's really a great question. And this is something that we run into all the time where we will have patients admitted and the team gets really anxious to start something because it's a new therapy. Maybe it was just presented at ASH a couple of months ago. And what we have to think about and what I spend a lot of time talking to the team about is we need to slow down and make sure that we run benefits analysis, make sure that the patient's insurance will pay for it because we don't want to end up stuck in the position where we've started a drug inpatient and then lo and behold, their insurance won't pay for it. So we now have to stop abruptly, switch gears, and perhaps take them off a therapy that we've already initiated. And this is especially applicable for the oral therapies. And so it's important to really do your due diligence, get all your ducks in a row before you make a finalized treatment decision. And that's really where a pharmacist can play a huge role in an interdisciplinary team. Now, in terms of intravenous agents, we also run into this issue too, especially I'll bring up the 
topic that no one likes to talk about, which is drug shortages. We deal with drug shortages all the time, and unfortunately, it really throws a wrench in our ability to be able to appropriately treat patients sometimes, and we need to think of alternatives. And so whenever a provider says, we're going to start this therapy tomorrow, I say, we might start this therapy tomorrow. Let me make sure we actually have drug in stock. Let me order it. Let me make sure that we have all of our ducks in a row in that regard too, because unfortunately in this day and age, drug shortages are just something that we've learned to live with at this point. There's no getting around it. Yeah, it is the reality of it. It really is. And so let me uh, let me ask it in a polite way, but how often do you deal with the frustration of the clinicians? Is there a conflict? Is more than daily an option? I think that we share the frustration, all of us, because at the end of yeah. the day, in your practice, in my practice, we all just want to put the patient first. And we don't really understand why there's these barriers in the way to providing patient care. We think that we should be able to get the drug we want when we want it and that their insurance should pay for it because that's what's best for the patient. But unfortunately, that's mm -hmm. not always what happens. And so we all work together and do a good job of optimizing patient outcomes, but we all share in the frustration equally. And we do. I want to ask you about drug-drug interactions. Again, with all the new agents, how often do you see it? And I actually would love to hear an example of, from your practice of when this becomes relevant and what your role is. Yeah, so I think that drug-drug interactions, when I teach my residents, it is number one, number two, and number three that I teach them, especially when dealing with oral agents, because what you'll see is that the high majority of these new oral agents will go through the SIP enzyme system. And so we always need to be thinking about what drug interactions could possibly exist. And so whenever I have a patient that's on an oral chemotherapy agent, I always run a drug-drug interaction check. I do not rely on my memory to serve me well. I double-check myself. And a good piece of advice that I would give to clinicians out there, especially non-pharmacy clinicians, is that it could serve you well to run a drug interaction check through multiple databases. So for example, using LexiComp and Micromedics. And the reason for this is that especially with newer drugs, they may not be entirely loaded into all of these databases. And so you may get incomplete search results. So it's always good to double check yourself. Now, in terms of, of having a real life example of a drug-drug interaction, I think that a really good one to make people remember this is actually in the reverse. And so we had a patient who was on venetoclax and they were getting ambisome for a fungal pneumonia. And when they were getting ambisome, we had the patient on full dose venetoclax because there's not a drug-drug interaction. And then we switched the patient back over to an azole antifungal and forgot to initially dose reduce. And so we always think about when we're adding a oral oncolytic to someone's therapy plan, we need to run a screen because it's a new drug. But also when you're adding new drugs to patients that are already on these oral oncolytics, also really important to think about that because that patient warranted a dose reduction. And luckily the great PAs that I work with happened to catch it right away. They knew that they needed to give me a call and figure that out. But at all times, whether you're starting someone on an oral oncolytic or starting a new drug on someone who's already on one, always think about drug-drug interactions, no matter what the setting is. That is really interesting and really important reminder. 
Finally, I want to ask you a last question that's very timely, which has to do with COVID and the COVID vaccine. What are some of the common questions you're being asked about both of those? So with COVID, you know, we certainly get a lot of questions about where do we stand and where are we going? I think there's still a lot of fear out there, especially uh, practicing in New York. We were certainly hit very hard by the pandemic very early on. Living in New York for over a decade, being here during COVID-19 was like a whole different world because I had never seen the city in that light before. And so I think having been hit that hard, a lot of people are still a little weary to return to life as normal. So a lot of our patients are asking, even though the numbers have come down somewhat, a lot of people ask, what is it safe to do? What can I think about doing as we return to a new normal? So that's certainly a prevalent question that we get. Also, certainly vaccine questions are very prevalent from our patients. They all want to know, first and foremost, the question we get asked all the time, which one should I take? Now, I would tell people, take whichever one is offered to you. That is the yes, best answer. Uh, um, I'm not right? sure what you do in your practice, but that is certainly what we do. We say, That's what I say. Take yeah. It. <laughs> if you have an offer, it. take it. But I think that the other thing that we get asked is, is it going to work? And, mm-hmm. you know, I think cancer patients are, especially blood cancer patients, are savvy enough to know that a lot of them have altered immune systems and they want to know, should I take this relatively new drug if I don't even know that it's going to work? And what we tell them for the most part, you may not have as robust of a response as somebody else does, but in your best interest, we're looking out for your safety. We would recommend that you go ahead and get vaccinated if your provider's okay with it. So I need to ask you again, this is from my practice in the last two weeks. Patients getting rituxan, can they get the COVID vaccine? Is that okay? Yeah, so directly there's no contraindication to them receiving uh, the vaccine. And so, you know, as long as they have no other medical condition or no other reason that makes them ineligible for the vaccine, we would typically tell that patient, yeah, you should go ahead and get it. Acknowledging, yes, you may not have as robust of a response, but some response is better than none. You're not going to have any response if you don't get any shot. All true. So I have to say, this has been a wonderful session. It's been really interesting to hear about your work as part of the team. It's such a lovely reminder, important reminder that oncology is a team effort when so much is contributed by the oncology pharmacists, by the nurses, by the PAs, everyone that you've mentioned. So with that in mind, uh, I would like to thank everyone for listening to this wonderful conversation. I'd like to thank Dr. Peter Campbell, who's the clinical pharmacy manager in hematology oncology at Columbia University at the Irving Medical Center. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. For all of you who are listening, for a listing of our continuing education activities and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org slash CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. And I look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 
Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.